Conversational Commerce, the podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends by talking shop with the Retail Dive team, thought leaders, and executives. This time on the show, I sat down with Matthew Shea. For the last seven years, he's been the head of the National Retail Federation. And for those who don't know, the organization is based just a few minutes down the road from Retail Dive's office in Washington, D.C. It's one of the biggest trade associations in the industry, and it's also known for hosting a major retail tech show in New York City each year called The Big Show. In a recent interview, we talked about how the retail climate has changed during his time at the organization, what he considers to be the most pressing issues facing in the industry, and also what's ahead this holiday season and beyond. As we've talked about on the show before, the industry is undergoing a massive transformation, and one of Shea's biggest roles right now is helping retailers navigate the new era of retailing. Before we dive in, I want to give you a heads up that this interview has been edited down for length and clarity. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. You're welcome. To start off, I'd like to actually take you back about seven and a half years to when you started as the head of the NRF. And I'm curious what the retail climate was like at that point and how you saw the NRF. So the overall economic climate in 2010 was still pretty choppy because we're coming right out of the recession. So the unemployment levels were still relatively high, certainly higher than they had been historically. And the retail industry was certainly hit because people were pulling back on discretionary spending and, and uh, consumer spending was was down. And so it was a period of uh, a lot of disruption, a lot of uncertainty. The, the National Retail Federation, to me, as I came in, looked like a, a great platform to help tell the story of the industry and uh, to, to shape the vision both for the industry and for those that observe the industry and talk about the things that take place in retail in terms of innovation and serving communities. But really, at that time, the focus was on job creation. So in 2010 and 11, uh, much of what we did at NRF and the things we talked about, the programs we highlighted, the stories we told, were really focused on the job creation aspects of the retail industry and really aggregating, measuring, and, and publicizing the fact that the retail industry is the largest private sector employer in the United States and telling for the first time the story of the one in four jobs of 42 million Americans that are employed in retail because of the activity that takes place, retailers large and small, uh, the millions of businesses in this country. And that had never really been done before. And so as challenging as the economy was then, it really presented the perfect opportunity to talk about who would be in the aggregate and to quantify the role of the industry in the economy, to talk about the nearly 20% of GDP and the trillions of dollars in payroll taxes and all of those things that I think really began changing the narrative about the industry and elevating, uh, I think, and, and improving the image of the industry in the eyes of policymakers and the media and others who really started to think differently about what retail stands for. And what was intriguing to you about it personally? Did you find it to be an interesting challenge or something that you were already very passionate about? Well, I, I came from another trade association in which I represented entrepreneurs and, and job creators and franchisees, small businesses, risk takers. And many of the policy issues were similar in terms of the focus on tax reform or on, on health care or, or on trade, on job creation generally, and capital formation and entrepreneurship. So there were a lot of similarities and some overlap on, on the specific policy issues. And I'd been at the other organization for about 15 years. And this was just a really unique opportunity. It was kind of a once-in-a-career opportunity. Taking things apart and putting them back together, building things is, is exciting. It's fun. It's very rewarding. And that looked like a great challenge and a great opportunity. And, and I think 
you know, seven years later, we've um, we've made a lot of progress, you know, towards those objectives. And now, nearly a decade later, how do you look at that transformation and that reinvention of the organization? Well, I, I think that the thing that we've been able to do successfully by engaging our members and by building the team here and uh, and really you know, investing the resources that needed to be invested is we've been able to tell the story in a much more effective way and to amplify the message of the industry and help people understand more fully the role of the industry in the economy, the potential impact of various policy issues on job creators and on those millions of employees that, that uh, serve customers in the retail industry. And we've really lifted the you know, not only the visibility uh, of the NRF, but we've improved the image of the industry uh, in many ways. And the investments that we've made in not only telling the stories of the job creators, but talking about uh, career opportunities that exist in the industry through you know, scholarship programs or our talent acquisition programs or our new certification training program, Rise Up. All the work that we've done in, in that area of careers, I think, has, has dramatically changed the old perceptions of the industry. It, it, it's, a, it's an everyday job. I mean, you never can stop um, having those conversations because, you know, people forget or don't know. So, so that is a process that is always ongoing. But on the policy side, we've been, I think we've been on balance, um, very effective for our members on issues, whether it was helping the Congress and the administration understand the, the real implications of the border adjustment tax that had gone into effect, highlighting concerns about uh, trade issues or perspective on health care or on cybersecurity, many, many other issues that, that we talked to the Congress and, and elected mm -hmm. leaders about um, you know, whenever they're here. And I think all of those things have gotten better. And I think that's reflected in the growth of the association, the engagement level of the member companies, the CEOs that are involved, the companies that have joined and rejoined the NRF. The, you know, sort of across the board, there are a lot of yardsticks that you could use to assess the effectiveness. And I think most of those yardsticks, I think objectively, you know, people would say, yeah, you, the organization has been able to move the needle for the people that serve. I imagine you've encountered many challenges so far in your career here. But one, one challenge that I imagine that you have is the NRF has many different members that range in size and mission and segment. And, you know, they're disruptors and they're also old school brick and mortar retailers. And I wonder how you think about advocating on behalf of all of them when you have um, these very different players in the industry? Well, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting question. We, we do have an enormously diverse membership. And so we, we run the gamut from wholesalers and big box and, and discount to department stores, to luxury stores, to specialty apparel, to home goods, to home furnishings, to grocery, to chain restaurants, all the way over to pure play online internet and from the very largest of those in each of those categories and many others down to the very smallest. But we look at the diversity of the organization as, as really a strength because it gives us the opportunity to represent the industry as it is and, and to speak on behalf of the entire industry with a single voice as opposed to any one of those individual segments where by definition you're missing uh, uh, you know, other components of the industry. It can occasionally be challenging navigating uh, through that. But I, I think most people would be surprised at how much uh, agreement and harmony there is among the members on the issues. The impact of, say, a certain policy issue will be different for one than the other, but most of them will be impacted some way. And it's, it's rare um, that there are policy issues on which we find winners and losers within our membership. So when the border adjustment tax was proposed, it, it was 
instantly clear to the membership that, that this was a, a real threat. Um, it didn't take very long for us to understand what a challenge that was. And that's true for most issues. Now, as you go you know, along that continuum where you go highest to lowest threats, then there are some more specialized niche kinds of issues that may affect some folks and not others. But, you know, we try to play in the, in the areas where there's commonality and not get too far down um, into the weeds where there's a very small group of our members that are affected. Because in many cases, those companies have access to other means of, of addressing those issues. So if it gets to a very specific issue that only one segment of the membership cares about, and it's a very small segment, then, you know, we usually have a conversation about what's the right way to approach that rather than elevate it if we can get a result. And I think the border adjustment tax is an interesting example of that. I don't know that we've ever seen such a, a policy issue really rile up retailers in a way to bring them together, bring them to Washington, um, see a lot of commonalities to advocate against something that could be potentially extremely harmful. Um, I wonder to you if that was an especially interesting moment where the members and other retailers really rallied together. And, and now that it looks like border adjustment is is gone for good, whether that momentum, that high engagement will be fueled into other policy efforts. If that had come up you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago before trade schemes and the supply chain worked the way it did, it might not have been the same kind of issue. On the other hand, it wouldn't have raised very much money because it, there wouldn't have been anything to tax. You know, I think that now that the passions of the industry have been aroused on, on this issue, um, I think it is likely that, that that momentum will continue on other issues. Now, how do we keep them engaged? And I think that's, you know, to a certain extent, that's everyone that is involved in uh, trying to you know, play a role in an industry trade group is uh, constantly looking for that issue, which they can deliver a lot of value for the members and then create an ongoing relationship. And I think you know, for us, this was clearly one of those opportunities. And is that momentum going to be fueled still into tax reform as it continues to move forward? Or is there another big policy issue that you see being the very top of mind for the NRF and members going into 2018? You know, as, as Churchill said, it's not the beginning of the end, it's the end of the beginning. And I think, you know, the, moving on from the border adjustment tax, which is, was just the end of the beginning, there's a lot more to go here on tax reform. And for the retail industry, tax reform would have to be our top priority, our number one priority, because we pay at the highest rate already, so we're at the full 35% corporate rate. When you add on state, local, and other taxes, it gets close to 40%. We benefit from none of the expenditures, credits, um, R&D, you know, loopholes. There's no benefit for retailers in any of the existing provisions of the code that may be beneficial to other industries. And what we'd like to see is a code that is agnostic as the industry and treats all industries the same way. It says, here's the rate. There's no special deals for anybody. You're all going to pay the same rate. And let's do away with the things that create those perverse incentives for some companies, some brands, and some segments, and some industries to to make decisions about investments and job creation and uh, and, and you know, other kinds of activities because of the tax code. Let's just eliminate that, and let's all sort of have a level playing field in terms of, of the tax rate. And think by doing so, you can substantially uh, broaden the base and lower the rate, make it much more competitive globally. And that gives us the opportunity to then reinvest in other things, hopefully job creation and uh, um, serving customers. So you've had the opportunity to be a part of retail advocacy throughout many 
presidents um, now. And I'm curious how the advocacy has evolved under the Trump administration so far this year. Well, I think everyone recognizes that we've got a, an unconventional um, occupant in the White House and, uh, and a disruptor in chief, so to speak. And certainly at the beginning, it was uh, earlier in the year, it was a question of that, how different is this going to be? But as different as some things are, a lot of Washington you know, still works the way it always did. You're going to influence policy. You've still got to work with the Congress. You've still got to work with members of the committees or committee chairs and their staff. And, and the border adjustment tax is uh, certainly an example of that. I mean, there was a, a substantial amount of effort that we put into articulating our perspective with the administration and, uh, and with members of the administration and with the departments and agencies, so they had a perspective. You know, at, at least as much or more went into shaping the views of uh, the folks on Capitol Hill. You know, Washington is, and, and this is very quintessential, I think, of the occupant of the White House, it's quintessentially a relationship town. Um, the president is, is uh, someone who highly values relationships. And uh, that's, that's, that's very Washington, but it's just also very human nature. Do you feel like you've been able to, has there been an opportunity to create a really good relationship with this administration? You know, the, the thing that, that we observed very early this year was the willingness of members of the administration and leaders in the departments and agencies to be engaged, um, to, to seek out and, and be interested in our perspective on issues. And it was such a dramatic change from the past eight years. And, and what a challenge it often was uh, to, to build relationships or to get a message through. And uh, we've built wonderful relationships. We've been in, we've been to the White House on a number of occasions. We've been in to see Secretaries of Commerce, uh, Treasury, Labor, um, SBA, I mean, there are many, many examples of the conversations we've had with Secretary Mnuchin, Secretary Ross, Secretary Costa, um, Administrator Linda McMahon at SBA, White House team, and that is a dramatic departure from, from the past eight years. So the administration has been very, very good about being open, about being accessible, uh, about wanting to understand the perspective and uh, to learn from the retail industry and, and I think from other representatives of various perspectives here in Washington. And that's been a really refreshing change of pace. So to, to switch gears a little bit from the policy side of the NRF um, and, and more of the, the face of retail and, and engaging with, among members, um, I want to talk a little bit about the state of the industry in general. A couple of weeks ago, you spoke at the Retail Advocacy Summit to members and really pushed back on this retail apocalypse narrative that's been bubbling up and what you described the industry as in a point of transition, but certainly not an industry that is dying in any way, but really kind of transitioning into a new light. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about the transformation that you're seeing. Sure. I, I think the, the thing that some observers miss is that, you know, there are multiple parts to the story and, and some observers be the, you know, sins of omission or sins of commission, uh, choose to only focus on one part of the story. And so if the part of the story is there's a mall somewhere in the United States that has um, a number of, of uh, darkened doors and some stores closing, and then ultimately the mall closes, that, that that's representative of the retail industry, and that's the death of retail. Or if a particular brand um, operating in a segment 
that because of the challenges of that segment or that brand, that that's the death of retail. And I think I think you know those observers fail to recognize that in, on a comprehensive basis, retail is much bigger than that. So I think people jump to conclusions, people make generalizations, and so I would say that it's a it's an industry in transition because consumers are changing, where they engage and behave is changing because e-commerce is disrupting the marketplace because the way in which technology can be adapted today to abbreviate and truncate the supply chain uh, because the barriers to entry are so much lower today than they were before. It's easier to start a business uh, with the technology platforms that exist today because of the brevity of the supply chain. In some cases, it's easier to get product to market using technology. Um, so you see these startup companies that can come in and change things and have an impact very, very quickly. So that's put pressure on retailers to make changes. And depending on the footprint of the of the particular retailer and the business they operate and the customers they serve, some can only move as quickly as they can move. And so some are going to be left behind and some are going to successfully transition and make changes. It, it is true, yes, there are store closings. I think that's a fact. There's too much real estate in the United States. There are too many malls. There are too many stores. Um, you know, the development and, and, and real estate are cyclical industries. That's true. There are also retailers opening stores. There are lots of retailers in lots of segments opening lots of stores. And so, it, it, you know, I guess we push back when, when all people want to talk about are the closings, but no one wants to talk about the openings. And there are openings. There is growth. There is transformation. And I'm going to talk about bricks and mortar retailers. And there are digital retailers that are opening stores. Now, we represent, we represent stores, we represent digital, we represent everybody. Um, so it's, it's not about stores or no stores. We represent retail, not bricks and mortar, not digital, not, not real estate, not developers. And I think people fail to step back and look at retail in its totality and say, yes, it's transforming. Some are closing, some are opening, some are getting into the business in an environment in which Walmart is buying Moose John, Bonobos, um, and for that matter, a year ago, Jet, and, and Amazon is, is buying Whole Foods, and Jack Ma of Alibaba is saying, you can't be successful without real estate. I mean, I think in that environment, it's clear that neither is winning nor losing. It's just, it's all changing. You know, earlier this year, I think a lot of the headlines were the apocalyptic variety of what's going to happen to the retail industry. Well, same thing that's always happened. It's going to keep evolving and changing and growing. But people are going to still consume. Um, there's still going to be brands. There's still going to be shopping that goes on. The notion that the retail industry is going to go away, I think it's just, you know, patently false. And, and anyone that suggests it, I think it's just misguided or, or misinformed. So so we've what we've tried to do is say, listen, we're not defending any one segment or any one person. We're just trying to help you understand what's going on. And I think that, you know, based on some of the recent headlines, um, you know, I think people are starting to understand that, um, that there's you know, more, more to the story than simply um, the store closure piece. Certainly extremely nuanced. And as someone that has the more long view picture of the ups and downs and the changes and transformations and reinventions in retail. I'm curious if you view this time as unusual in any case, beyond bankruptcies and store closures, but also a lot of new technology and, and AI and, and push for digital and, and omni-channel and those things, if it's still unusual in other aspects. Well, it's certainly unusual I mean, and, and unique in all those aspects. 
Um, I mean, I, you know, people talk about the Moore's law and the way things get compressed and, you know, in successive half, sort of half, half, half lives. Um, I, I think what's different about today is that the pace of change um, has accelerated so dramatically and it's all very transparent. It's all happening right before our eyes. And, uh, you know, if you go back 100 years or 150 years when uh, people were making the great migration west as opposed to east um, and living uh, west of the Mississippi and the general stores were populating small towns and over time those gave rise to uh, sort of the between the first and second world war the department stores and the large urban centers as 60% of the population left farmlands of the, of the country and moved into the urban centers and then as we got out of world war ii then you saw the great migration out to the suburbs and you saw the development of shopping malls into the 50s and 60s and 70s and then in the 90s you saw more transformation some of the big box stores really started to dominate the landscape and, you know, in each of those periods, it's gotten successively smaller. You know, I think we're living through a moment like that. Um, and it, it's, it's a combination of both the pace of the change and the transparency of the change that, uh, that is true really in every industry. So, I mean, I mean, if you widen the lens a little bit more, look about what's happening, look, look, look what's going on in the entertainment industry or in communications or in insurance or transportation or manufacturing or the auto industry. You know, we're not alone in that. I mean, we've got the same opportunities and challenges as the, the Netflix and the HBOs and the Disneys and, and you know, I mean, or, or, or the Ubers uh, and the Fords and the GMs. Or, I mean, everyone's got their own version of, of the clash of the titans or of the disruption of we've got an upstart against a, a legacy player. Um, how are you going to resolve that? I, I, you know, I, I guess I'm always a little amused when people say, what's going to happen to retail? I say, well, what's going to happen to every industry? I mean, one way or another, it's most of the same customers and almost all the same technology being applied to the same challenge, which is how do you deliver more of what your customers want effectively uh, and more quickly? Yeah, and I think retailers are, are coming to that challenge in many different ways. And as you said, there are a lot of retailers that are, are building out, building more stores. There are online players that are building stores. We're seeing a lot of innovation happening right now. And I'm, I'm curious how you look at the innovation that's happening right now and how you envision that that will form the way that the industry is heading. I think a big piece of what's going on now is retailers are trying to understand how they remove friction uh, from the from the process and, and how they create a better experience for their consumers. Now, there along, there is certainly, there's exclusivity and there's convenience and there's price and you know, but people compete on different products in different ways. And so, you know, if you're a luxury department store and a chain discount store and a specialty grocery store, you, you know, you're, you're delivering different things to people. Um, but, but man, the challenges and opportunities are the same. And a substantial part of it is about the, what's the experience? What's the journey feel like? How do you enable people to do things you know, on the small screen, do you have a small screen first strategy depending upon, you know, what, what's your business? Uh, how easy do you make products and services available to people, uh, you know, on, on the mobile device? Do you have a seamless 
and a completely integrated strategy between your, if you're in the bricks and mortar business, between bricks and mortar and online or in mobile, uh, you know, it's many of the same challenges. But I think ultimately it is still about what it's always been about, which is what's the customer experience? I mean, how do they get more of what they want, when they want it, how they want it at the right price or with the right selection or with the right exclusivity or the right level of convenience or service or however your customers grade you. Because if you're a luxury department store, they're grading you on maybe exclusivity, maybe on service. Um, and if you sell things that are you know more commoditized products, you're getting graded on price and, and ease of delivery. Um, so everyone's got to find their niche because they aren't all competing exactly the same way because they're selling different things. But ultimately, it is... They're all trying to do a better job at creating the experience for the customer. And so if you're in the bricks and mortar business, it's how do you get more people into the store or how do you use the online um, journey and the, and the bricks and mortar journey to create a single kind of unified experience. And uh, I think that's part of what's really exciting about what's happening today is people are making real progress and getting better at it because retail sales continue to increase. The numbers keep going up. Retail sales will be bigger this year than last year. They'll be bigger next year than this year. It's going to keep happening, and people will keep innovating, and that will be good for everybody because customers will get a better experience, and we'll create more jobs, and uh, we'll do more interesting, innovative things. The retailers are always thinking about these things that are going to drive their customer experience and all of that forward year-round, but I think especially as we're moving into the holiday season creeping up, um, it's a little bit more top of mind how all of these processes are going to flow and how they're going to drive store traffic as well as online and mobile and connect all of these things. And I'm curious what you think retailers should really be keeping in mind this holiday season and how that might differ from years past. Overall, the economy is very strong. Uh, we know there are some distractions right now self-inflicted sorts of distractions, uh, policy distractions, global issues. But over the, overall, the economy is very strong. Consumers should feel very good. The unemployment rate is very low. Uh, wages are growing. Um, you know, there's, there's job creation occurring in the marketplace. We'd like you know, average hourly earnings and wage, wage increases to accelerate. We'd like to see job creation accelerate, but it's a very healthy, strong economy. And so consumers ought to be in a good place. Having said that, I think it's still going to be a promotional season. Uh, retailers are going to be very competitive on price. They're going to be looking for ways to create um, some exclusivity, some experiences that you won't be able to find at their competitors. And, uh, and, and I think as retailers get into the season, you're going to see uh, the delivery of some really exclusive, interesting products that will grab people's attention and get them into the stores or get them onto the website or get them to click buy wherever they find that buy button. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Conversational Commerce. For all the latest updates on industry news, analysis, and trends, subscribe to our free newsletter at retaildive.com. And stay tuned for more episodes. Up next, our very own Laura Heller, Senior Editor at Retail Dive, joins me to give you a look ahead at what to expect this holiday shopping season. This year, we're keeping an especially close eye on how pricing and promotions, voice assistant shopping, and fast and free delivery will all shape the end of the year. We'll break down all of that and more next time. Whether you like this podcast or hated it, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. You can also send us feedback by email or on Twitter at Retail Dive. 
Until next time, I'm Corinne Ruff, and this was Conversational Commerce.